There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Dwell, a Circe Institute podcast by homeschool moms for homeschool moms. I am your host today, Karen Kern, and I'm joined by my co-host, Renee Mathis. Hi, Renee. Hey, Karen. Good to see you. Good to see you too. And today we have a special guest. Before I let Renee introduce her, I'm going to tell you about our sponsor that we have today, Reformation Bible College and their online classes. Reformation Bible College seeks to equip students in the knowledge of God and His holiness, that they may glorify and enjoy Him in any career they enter. RBC's founder, Dr. R.C. Sproul, carefully designed the curriculum to provide students with a classical education that is distinctly reformed. If you are looking to study theology from the comfort of your home, you can receive a firm theological foundation in the Reformed tradition through RBC Online. Online courses at RBC are designed to help you grow in your knowledge of Scripture, develop a Christian worldview, and learn how to defend the gospel. You can participate in live classes, interacting directly with professors and classmates. In addition to taking courses for personal enrichment, you can also earn a certificate in theology by completing eight online courses from RBC. Students pursuing this certificate are invited to participate in the school's annual commencement exercises, and online students can select the course load that best fits their schedule each semester. You also have the option of transferring these credits to one of RBC's on-campus degree programs. Are you interested in pursuing theology for life at Reformation Bible College? Visit reformationbiblecollege.org slash online to learn more about RBC Online and follow us on social media. So thank you to our sponsors, RBC. Thanks, Thanks Karen. <laughs> it's good to see you all. Um, so today I have the privilege of introducing our special guest. Her name is Lexi Hudson, and she is a writer, storyteller, and the founder of Civic Renaissance. She's going to tell us more about what that is. And we first heard about Lexi when we came across her book called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. 
Lexi is a homeschooling mom of two lovely little children. She has a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter, lives in Indiana with her husband. So Lexi, welcome to Dwell. We're glad to have you. Thank you, Renee and Karen. So thrilled to be here. Good to see you. So fill us in on what I left out. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and your book, perhaps, how you came to write it. So I'm a California native, raised in Vancouver, Canada, and um, I was raised, I would say the defining aspect of my home life was our love of learning. My parents are very curious people and, and that, you know, intellectual omnivorousness really pervaded our, our home life. My parents are very credentialed. They have multiple graduate degrees and my dad has three masters and PhD. My mom has her graduate degree in business and, and law. Um, but they always knew that that learning was a way of life. It was just a way of engaging with others. And that, that was really kind of a defining fe- feature of, 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 of my, my life. Um, I actually really did come to my interest in, in the topic of my book, honestly. My mother, my book is called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. And um, my mother is something of an etiquette expert. She's someone who, um, you know, taught us to mind our P's and Q's, all the while um, embodying kind of the timeless principles of civility and hospitality that I extol in my book and, and disentangle from mere politeness. But she taught us the ways and means of politeness while also embodying hospitality. Our home growing up was this revolving door of newcomers, of, 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 of homestays, of, of just strangers in our community becoming friends and becoming family, really. And um, I am someone who does not like being told what to do. I am constitutionally allergic to authority. I hate rules. And you know, the moment someone tells me to do something, I want to know why, you know, what's the grounding. And uh, my mom would tell me to sit at the table and I wanted to know, why do we do things the way that we do them? Is it just because, you know, someone somewhere at some time in, in life said that we should set the table this way? Or why are we using forks at all and not chopsticks or not our hands? This little barbarian I was when I was growing up. But these 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 why questions always kind of lingered with me. Uh, and, and, and to this day, that, that really, really informed why I, I wrote this book. Um, I generally followed the rules my mother taught me. She promised they would lead to success in school and work and life. And she was right until I found myself at the United States Department of Education. I was there 2017 to 2018. Um, and, and and there, everything I thought I knew to be true and good about myself, about the world around me, about getting along with others across difference, that was refuted. First of all, one thing that was very frustrating to discover was that I love learning and I love education, which is why I ended up at the Department of Education And yet I was very alarmed to discover that the U.S. Department of Education, the single largest institution in the history of mankind dedicated to student instruction, didn't care about education. They didn't care about education as I had been educated, which is about curiosity, lifelong learning, Um, again, cultivating a love of beauty, goodness, truth, soulcraft, ordering our passions, ordering our loves. Instead, there are a ginormous bureaucracy that cares more about moving money from point A to point B than about anything else to do with education, which is, uh, you know, how I came to view education as being. And so um, that was one frustrating thing. Another frustrating aspect of my time in government was that um, 
was just the interpersonal toxicity and hostility. When I was in government, I saw these two extremes. On one hand, there were people who were hostile and aggressive. They were people who they uh, had sharp elbows and they were willing to step on anyone to, to get what they wanted. And I needed to stay away from those people. On the other hand, uh, there was this contention of people that I at first thought were my people. They were polished and poised and polite and yet ruthless and cruel. These are the ones that would smile at me one moment, stab me in the back the next. And this second contingent really through me. It perplexed me because one thing my mom had said to me growing up was that manners mattered because they were an outward expression of our inward character. And yet here I was surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel. And so this experience taught me several things. One is that these two extremes, they really define our public life today. People think that, you know, they can either be nice to counter the hostility and aggressiveness, or they uh, people want to be, you know, bullies and strong men to puncture the the faux niceness and politeness. Um, but they're actually, but the, these two extremes really define our public life. And actually, they're two sides of the same coin. That they are both kind of overcorrectives, both the extreme hostility, the extreme politeness. They're very similar, and they they have an insufficiently high view of the gift of being human. And they instead instrumentalize others. The, the hostile contingent sees other people as, as pawns to be stepped on and discarded in order to get ahead. And the polite contingent sees other people as pawns to be manipulated and then discarded. And both insufficiently see other human beings as, as beings with dignity and worth, worthy of respect just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And uh, this the third, third, this experience taught me this essential distinction between civility and politeness. That politeness is etiquette. It's it's manners, it's technique, it's external, it's all the stuff out here. Whereas civility is internal. It's it's about motivation. It's the disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect just by virtue of our shared moral worth as members of the human community, our shared dignity as, as human beings, and that crucially sometimes actually respecting others requires being impolite, telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate. So that's a core part of my argument in the book that, you know, everyone conflates these terms, civility and politeness, whether they want more, whether they want, they want less. But in fact, there's an essential difference between them. And we instead need to pursue civility, the, the inner disposition that actually respects others. That's worth, that, that sees, sees others as respecting enough that, that it's worth risking offending others, telling a hard truth. Uh, that's actually a form of loving others and not just being content with the politeness, the faux respect that too often defines our, our world today. So at the beginning of your book, you start by going back to the Epic of Gilgamesh and, and these old stories, you kind of go through history as uh, a foundation to your ideas, right? So just tell our listeners how you um, include those old stories in this idea that you're, that you're expressing through civility. My book is about the most important question of our day, which is how do we peacefully coexist 
even when we deeply differ and disagree with other people. This is the most important question that we're grappling with right now, but it's also the defining question of American democracy, of, of the classical liberal project. How do we live in a pluralistic society with different visions of the good, different goals for what we should do? How do we, how we should live our lives? And, um, but, it, but as I learned while writing this book, this is the defining question of our species as well. As long as human beings have been around, we have been grappling with this challenge. Um, we're profoundly, and human nature hasn't changed. Um, we're profoundly social as a species. God said in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. And we see this idea echoed across history, across culture, across religious ethical tradition, that we're doggedly social. We become fully human. We're created for relationship and, and for community. And yet also, morally and biologically, we're defined by self-love. We're fallen, we're selfish, and we're geared to meet our own needs before others. And those two facets of who we are are intention. And that is why this joint project of doing life together is fragile. And it always will be. It always has been. It always will be. Like in the form of friendship, in the form of democracy, in the form of marriage, which is at its core a friendship. Um, civilization itself, at the micro to the macro, all of it is fragile and it depends on the, it's never a foregone conclusion. The moment you put a democracy on autopilot, the moment you put a marriage on autopilot, that's the beginning of the end. It takes daily, minute by minute nurturing of the bonds, those fragile bonds of attachments in order to see it sustain. And um, and so that's that's really what my book is about. It's 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 narrowing in on the small things, the day to day things that build trust, that build build love, that build um, that build affection, that sees, that helps to ensure that we um, not just survive as a species, but flourish as well as God intended us to in relationship and in community with others. So I have a question um, to make sure I understand you correctly. You're not saying that we should throw out the idea of manners, I'm guessing. Um, no, no. Yeah. Respect to other people, and especially with little children, you know, teaching them how to look someone in the eye or introduce themselves or shake a hand properly. But that can't be the end goal. Is that That's exactly right? And I think that too often um, people in, in classrooms and society were content with just people doing the right things. Mm -hmm acting the right way. And, and my call to action for us as a society and in our homes is to make sure that kids, that, that citizens are not just doing and saying the right things, but that we're doing it for the right reasons as well. And this is really the higher calling of what Christ, of the Christian calling as well, right? That, that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Like we're constantly being examined and only we know our hearts, only God knows our hearts and that we ought not be content in ourselves when we are honoring God externally, but cursing him internally, you know, like that, this is, this is what cried a whole section of my book and my chapter on integrity about what, why Christ called us that higher standard too. He was not content with the Pharisees, the Sadducees who were hypocritically honoring God with their lips, but damning him in, in, in their, in, in their hearts. And, and being judgmental and self-righteous and cruel uh, in their in their personal lives that he um, he cared about. He cared more about the internal disposition, that, that disposition of civility, of actually loving, actually respecting. And that crucially, Christ loved 
the hypocrites enough to call them out. That was not a polite thing to do to say you're a hypocrite, you know, and to, but that's, but he was, he loved them enough. He respected them enough to not coddle them in their hypocrisy, not coddle them in their sin. And he's a, you know, Christ is our model, our model and all, and and especially uh, in this way. So Christ, I I talk about in, um, uh, in my book is an example to us about why, you know, being good is, is better and more important than just seeming good. Mm-hmm. And why we should aim for civility, the disposition of of actually loving, of respecting, uh, and, and and not just politeness. At its best, the um, politeness and the actions will will be an outflow of of right heart, right orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right belief informs right action. But too often, again, we're just content, we're complacent with the right right action and we insufficiently pay attention to the right belief the heart behind the action um and that that's where i want this conversation to go i like um in within your book at the end of each chapter you have some very practical steps and tips and ideas for what it looks like to cultivate civility within ourselves and within our families um you not only talk about how to treat other people but also some character traits that we can be developing within ourselves and one of my favorites is you talk about developing the superpower of unoffendability. <laughs> so tell us about that. What does that look like to be unoffendable? My grandmother taught me about this forgotten superpower of unoffendability. She um, she just had, you know, she, she, she was just so self-composed and she just had utter grace for everyone she met in life that whenever she met someone who was kind of calloused or terse or unkind or even just like aggressive, she knew that it was more about them than about her. And she chose how she was going to respond. And it was always, virtually always, I can't remember a time where it wasn't thus. It was according to her ideals, which was love of others. It was love of like, you know, modeling Christ in, in her conduct. And um, she she was excellent at, and so she knew it was in her within her control to, to not react to how people were responding to her and instead rise above it and respond according to her values. Um, she was excellent as well at seeing the thing beneath the thing. Like, you know, people would come come across as callous and and, and aggressive. And she was good at, at telling a story of of exoneration, not a story of condemnation. She was good at saying, okay, like I could either tell a story that says that's a bad person, stay away from them. Like, you know, red alert, fight or flight, like, you know, avoid, avoid. But instead she told a story of exoneration that was like, this person's not a bad person. They're having a bad day. And how can I be a little bit more gentle with them and not add to their grief, add to their, you know, whatever is going on in their lives? Like maybe they've just got a diagnosis. Maybe they've, they're on the brink of a divorce. Maybe they have a sick child. Like you never know where people are at in life. You never know. And we think, we do, we think we do. <laughs> we, 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 it's called in psychology, the fundamental attribution error where we always want to be more generous with ourselves. We know why we're late. We know why we're, you know, are short tempered with the, with the grocery store clerk. We know what's going on in our lives and, and we always have excuses for it, but we don't know what's going on in other people's lives. And so we're less gracious with them. And, and that's just a natural expression of our fallen human nature. <laughs> and so that's part of what my grandma was so excellent at, that she was so good at, at, at cultivating the habit to counter that tendency. And she was great at, um, 
at countering that narrative and saying, you know, I, I want to, I'm, I'm going to tell a higher story, a better story. I'm going to see the hurt and the woundedness behind this viciousness. And I'm going to be, I'm going to respond graciously. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to choose to make this about me and be offended because that's what being offended is. It's, it's choosing to make the situation about you as opposed to often seeing how whatever it is that might be offend you is actually probably more about the other person instead and where they're at in life. Well, that's yeah. such a valuable thing for, you know, in a family, family yeah. of children, there's lots and lots of opportunity to be offended and so <laughs> unoffendability. Yes. Should be, should be a household word. Thank you. I agree. Your grandmother sounds like a very, very wise woman, and uh, you are very fortunate to be able to learn from her um, from one generation to the next. So I'm going to break in here with speaking about learning within generations and between generations. Um, we have another sponsor, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about Inquisicook. Are you searching for hands-on activities that explore the practical side of science? Look no further than your kitchen. Inquisicook blends food science and culinary arts into an engaging program that puts delicious food on the family table. Let Inquisicook do the teaching with lesson videos that speak to the student in a friendly conversational tone. Their online platform is easy to navigate and optimized for mobile, so the learning experience can move from the classroom to the kitchen without a hitch. They provide the recipes, instruction sheets, and student forms for every lesson, so there are no books to buy. And their instructor resources make assessing student progress a piece of cake, even for the busiest parents. Inquisicook was created by homeschoolers for homeschoolers, and they're passionate about turning curious students into intuitive cooks, not just recipe followers. Say goodbye to the tyranny of the ingredients list and say hello to utilizing what's in season, what's on sale, or what's in the fridge. Visit inquisicook.com. I-N-Q-U-I-S-I-C-O-O-K dot com to view sample lessons, then check out the recipe gallery to see just how crave-worthy science can be. Thank you. Gosh, I want, I want that. I want, I want to cook. I'm constantly cooking with my kids and I love to cook more than baking for exactly that reason. The tyranny of like the ingredients list. Like my husband's the kind of person that will go to the grocery store and get everything for a recipe. And I am absolutely not that way. I will not leave my house unless I have like 11 reasons to leave the house. And so I'm, I go to my fridge, I go to my pantry. I'm like, what do I have? And I let the recipe, you know, is informed by what's, what's there. And so I, I like to cook because it's more art than, 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 science so uh and yeah cooking and, and baking is science class for kids and so I love that I, I'm ready I'm sign me up <laughs> so um on on in your chapter on polarization and tolerance which was so good um I found a quote that I just love that I want you to see if you can expand on uh you quoted 19th century English statesman Sir William Harcourt um that a functioning polis depends on constant dining with the opposition. And I love that so much because we have fallen so far from there. And we think that because we have social media and that we can put all our comments out there on so many different platforms that we have community. And yet it's so false. And so, you know, we don't have that practice of dining with people and listening to them and in that forming community where we can be tolerant because we actually love these people. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. That we 
we we definitely suffer a dearth of trust with our fellow citizens. And, um, you know, you, you asked me a moment ago about, you know, why do I open my book with the Epic, uh, Epic of Gilgamesh? And that's really to show the timelessness of this problem. My, my chapter one opens with the oldest story of the world, the Epic of Gilgamesh, to show that we've been grappling with this question for a long time, that the, the tension between the libido dominandi, as Augustine said, the lust to dominate within every human spirit and the incurvitus in say, the self-love in every human heart. Uh, and that, that being in tension with the high potential of us as human beings and as a species in community with, with others. Uh, and then the second chapter of my book opens with the oldest book in the world, the teachings of Tahotep that are a manners book that actually could have been, they could appear in, you know, any Miss Manners column today. They're just this timeless conventional wisdom, even though they're 4,000 years old because human nature doesn't change. And yet, as I, and as that's, that's kind of a drumbeat in my book is a timeless problem this uh, human nature doesn't change. We've been grappling with this for a long time, which I think gives us much needed humility with this question. Like no, no politician, no public policy is the cause and and no, you know, no policy, no book is going to come along and fix it. You know, like it's, it's a tractable problem. And yet there are things that are different and many things today have taken its toll on kind of our civic social fabric and social trust, such as social media, which breeds mistrust, such as the profit motives of our news cycle that always want us to blame the other and fear the other, fear that what well, we don't know, there's always someone to blame and exonerating us. Public leaders that are not examples in this way and also, you know, give us reasons to dislike people that we differ from and disagree with. Even just the way that we, many people live their lives today, that it's very easy to go through life and not really encounter people that we differ from or don't want to be around. It's really easy to just like leave our house, go to our car, go to our destination and come home again. <laughs> and we can have groceries delivered. We have stuff delivered. Like we can be really siloed virtually and corporally if we want to be, and many people do choose to be. And, and so the fact that we are not just spontaneously having these interactions with other people day to day, um, people who are different from us, people who we don't have much in common with, other than the fact that we live in the same place or send our kids to the same school, that we are kind of um, self-selecting out of these shared environments, that's hard and that's dangerous. I mean, I was talking about it in the context of our public leaders who used to all live in, in Congress, who used to live in Washington, send their kids to the same schools, eat at the same restaurants, go to the same supper clubs. And they it was like, yes, you debated policy by day, but at night you were just family. You were just, you know, fathers and you were, and you were husbands, you know, like it, it wasn't, whereas, whereas, um, you know, one thing that did take its toll on our public discourse was when leadership in Congress said, move home leave DC. You know, on one hand, there's something to be said about having our leaders rooted in the community that they're representing, of course. But when you're home, you know, three days a week and, and in Congress, five days a week, and and you're away from your family, like you, you can't wait to get back home to your family and you're not socializing with people. You're not getting to know your, your, your fellow members outside of the debates of the day. And, and it's like, you're, you're just show up to do the work, have the debates and go home. And what's lost is that dining together, metaphorically, but also practically. What's lost is that trust. What's lost is that um, that camaraderie that, that is essential to making a polis 
and a democracy function. And that is both at the at the level of our institutions with our leaders, but also at the day-to-day level uh, as citizens. So this is a problem at all levels of society that's taking its toll. And that's why I have a whole chapter on hospitality, on reaching across the divide and welcoming the stranger, which is transformative. It's this transformative power. It can't be legislated, can't be scaled, can't be forced, can't be mandated. It has to be voluntary. And, and, And all of my book is in that realm of the stuff that is so powerful and so important, but can't be mandated. Like public policy experts, technocrats hate talking about the stuff that is so important, but can't be mandated. And that's exactly where my book focuses on um, for this exact reason. This is, this is where I think our, our conversation should go. It's like, how can we each be part of the solution every day and not wait for some public figure, some technocrat, some, some bureaucrat to, to try and centrally plan some sort of resolution to our crisis of division, of alienation, of loneliness that we're suffering from right now. You're on mute. I want to hear what you're saying, Renee. Thank you. Okay. As classical educators, we love our epics and we love our our ancient authors. And um, I love that you've included so many of them in your book and and draw from their wisdom. And of course, um, stories of the Odyssey and the Iliad and and, and the ancient Greeks and hospitality and how to have a, a guest friend in your home mm-hmm. that you would shower with gifts without even knowing who they were, or what their story was, but just because... That's how people treated one another. And then you share a beautiful example in your own life of moving to a new community and someone reaching out to you and inviting inviting you to their front porch to get to know you and, and just to spend time with you. And uh, I think that's something that we could all learn from as homeschool moms and as families who are wanting to be rooted in our own communities. So maybe you could say a little bit about that, about on the, on the very micro level of, of right. in, one home, in one living room with one family. What does civility look like? Right. I um, I call myself a refugee from federal government. I fled politics. I fled government. I, I said to my, I came home from work one day and said to my husband, I'm done with DC. I'm done with Washington. Let's move to Indiana. <laughs> and this is where he's from originally. He's from the Midwest. And uh, we talked about moving here one day to be closer to his family and to raise a family of our own. And my husband says to me, okay, sounds good. We'll move to Indiana no take backs. And uh, a few, six years, six years later, we're, we're almost six years later, we're still, we're still here. And um, one of my first friends, when we first moved here, her name was Joanna Taft. And um, she came up to me after church one day and she said, hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime? And I'd never heard the word porch used as a verb before, but we were curious and we didn't know many people in town. So we went to her home that afternoon and she um, was, uh, I, I saw that she is staging this quiet revolution of hospitality and of civility in our divided and alienated status quo. She had curated people across politics, geography, race, social class, just to inhabit a shared space and not to talk about, you know, all the things we had um, that we differed ways in which we differed, but the, but the way, the things that we had in common, it was just a place to be seen and known and loved despite these differences that the world uh, attributed to us uh, and, 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 and wanted us to assign value to and, and, and make the difference. The most important thing about us, instead it was just like kind of countering that and just a place to be seen, known and loved because of what we had in common as members of the human community. And, um, 
that was revolutionary. That's radical. And I realized that there are people across the country doing the exact same thing. Some of them have a front porch. Some of them don't. It's that the porch is really a metaphor for that sort of lifestyle, that way of life, that of, of going through life and, and using what you have to be, a, be an oasis, to be a tool of healing and reconciliation. I met people who hold office hours at a local coffee shop. And that's just a place where people know that they can come for conversation and community. I met people who um, use their front stoops or front lawns or have have supper clubs or dinner parties, regular dinner parties at their home. That it's not about the porch. It's about using what you, how you use what you have and, and using what you have to transform outsider to, to outsider to outsider into insider, stranger into friend. And I saw my grandmother do this countless times. I saw my mother do this countless times. And the things that Joanna, my grandmother, my mother, and other people I know who live their lives as well have in common is their faith. It's their, it's their Christian faith that motivates them to, to reach across the divide, to keep on giving, even when they get rejected. And even when it's painful and hard, even when it's costly, that that's really contrary to the logic of the world that wants you to stay safe, wants you to stay just within your tribe and your comfortable bubble. But that's the stuff, really the stuff of human flourishing. And that's the stuff of the good life. I noticed in your book, you called that or you you encourage people, your readers to create cultures of civility at home. You know, that's just putting what you've just said in, into just a few words, right? Create yes. cultures of civility at home for your children and for your neighbors, you know, yes. for, for the people who are around you and yes. in all the different places that they're around you. Exactly. Exactly. And that, you know, again, a core message of my book is that the small things matter, the small ways matter, and that we each have way more power to be a part of the solution than we realize. And that it's not just the grand things like, um, you know, having people over for a big dinner party or even like the medium things like bringing a meal over to a friend or to a neighbor who's sick or maybe just had a baby. But that it's the small things too, like creating ecosystems of civility in the home and just how you live your life that in a, in a way that your children notice and see. We all know this, that we are our parent, our kids' best, first and most important teacher. And it's not just about what we actually teach them. It's about how we live our lives that often is the most important teacher to them. And I believe this to my core that I wrote this book that has you know, surprised me and how excited people are getting about it. I'm so grateful um, for the enthusiasm around my book and this project. And I wrote this book to help people. I wrote it to make the world a better and more gentle place for my children. A hundred percent I did. And yet no matter what happens with my book and no matter how, you know, how, how much better it makes the world, I know that the most important thing I'll ever do is raise good human beings, is to be a good mother to my children and to help create in them a love of God, a love of others, uh, and a gentleness that that allows them to go out and make the world a better place. I know that that is the most important thing that I'll, I'll ever do, despite despite having written this book and despite having written it for them. I know that my my utmost priority is, is being there, there for them, being the kind of mother that I want to be. And so I hope that's an encouragement to to your audience listening to this call who spends time rearing children, that that is beautiful, that is noble, and that is making the world better, and that is being part of the solution right now. 
Lexi, thank you so much. That's a that's a great summation of what you're all about. And I appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Um, before we close, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Do you have a website or what's the best way to um, learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so um, please join me at Civic Renaissance. It's my newsletter publication dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead better lives. Um, and that's a way to stay in touch and continue learning together. I'm about to launch a new initiative called a wise, the Wise Mother's Guide to the Good Life and, and just a, a practice of, of of mindfulness and presence and and um and learning and stillness that that I, I want to encourage other young mothers in as well. Um, and I'm actually very early in um, in my own pregnancy and working on a pregnancy devotional for women to kind of just savor this really beautiful and often volatile and awkward season of a woman's life. But like, how can this be sanctifying and a, a time of preparation for a really noble and beautiful thing that is like bringing new life into the world? So um, anyway, that's that's a, a, about to launch. But Civic Renaissance is, is up and ready to go. It's about 50,000 people um, who care about learning, care about um, the beauty of the past to help us lead better lives now. So please join us over there. And that's on the Substack platform. Is that that is, yes. Civic Renaissance over at Substack. Well, thank you, Lexi, for joining us. We wish you the best in your work and in your mission and calling. And for those of you out there, um, here's to home. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.